Tonight on Arena, Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson star in The Great Escaper, and John Behan tells us about his new exhibition, Across the Bitter Sea. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The Great Escaper is the title of a movie that brings together two genuine icons of cinema, Glenda Jackson and Michael Caine. The film tells the true life story of Second World War veteran Bernard Jordan, who in 2014 captured news headlines by making an escape from his Sussex care home to travel to France to attend the 70th anniversary commemorations of the D-Day landings. According to Michael Caine, this may well be his final movie. And of course, between the completion of the film and its release, we sadly lost its other star, Glenda Jackson. Both lead actors give astonishing performances. In a few moments, I'll be talking to the film's writer and director. That's Billy Ivory, writer, and Ollie Parker, director. First, let's have a listen to a clip. Bernard and Irene Jordan, played by Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson, are in a nursing home having a chat when in comes one of the managers, Judith, played here by Jackie Clune. She has bad news for Bernard, but Irene is somewhat in the dark. <laughs> Come in. Unless you're bailiffs. Did they put something <laughs> in your tea in that cafe this morning? Hey, Irene, how you doing? Oh, very well, thank you, Judith. Well, it's a good time, I just made some tea. You want a cup? Oh, I'd love one, Bernie, but we got an inspection. Ooh. You can't say I didn't make you an offer. <laughs> now, what can we do you for? I rang them straight away. I'm really sorry, Bernie. We left it too late. Left what? What are you on about? The trip to the beaches. D-Day. Bernie? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's my fault. I should have got more organised. They do a very good show here. I'll go there instead. Eh? Thank you for trying. Yes, thank you, Judith. No props. Bye. See you later. Right. Brew, then beach. Michael Caine as Bernie Jordan, Glenda Jackson as Rini Jordan and Jackie Clune as Judith, a nurse at the care home where Bernard is about to plan his escape to go on a solo run to the beaches of Normandy commemorating 70 years since D-Day. That's taken from the film The Great Escaper which will be released this Friday and I'm delighted to be joined by the film's writer Billy Ivory and director Ollie Parker. You know Billy, I, I talk about Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson being icon, icons in terms of this film but in fact Bernard Jordan is the real star in some ways the real life man whose story is told here what an extraordinary story that is it really is yeah you're absolutely right Sean and the thing is you know he was uh, what the film's about really is is uh, ordinary people who are extraordinary you know and, and it's I think uh, Rini says at some stage at one point in the movie that you know she's talking about their marriage and she says you know we only did ordinary little things but you know, you live to any kind of age, and you start to realise that 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 there are so many astonishing people in the world. And but certainly, Bernie was was really was somebody who knew him said he was one of those guys that once met you never forget. Mm. 
And he, I mean, in real life too, himself and Irene, I think, were they, were they mayor and mayoress at one point uh, in, in one of the cities in, in, in England, uh, Oliver? They were. Sorry. Yeah, I was the mayor in, uh, in Hove. Mm. And so he was, he was a very respected man <laughs> in his time. But actually, it was really his kind of civic commitment which marks him out, I think. And Billy, you talk about how in some ways, sometimes those characters who have gone through the war and have a sense of the, the sheer luck that they survived and the guilt that ensues, you know, often drives them to kind of more social uh, contributions. And that may be something behind behind um, Bernie's activities. Yes, because he, he, he decides to, to bring himself off to, um, to, to the D-Day landing commemorations. He, he thought he was going, but as we heard earlier in a clip, he, he, he's not going and he's very disappointed about that. But it did strike me that constantly when I looked at him, even from the very start, Willie, and I was wondering if this was there in, in the writing for you, Billy, um, there's this look, you just know, and it's wonderful because of the performance of Michael Caine, you know, there's something going on inside that man's head. Obviously, being part of the D-Day landings is enough to remember, but there was something at him all the time. It's extraordinary how he portrays that with so little Michael Caine. Yeah, well, do you know what? It's funny because I, 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 if I had a pound for every actor who said to me, I can do it with a look... Um, when you've slaved for several years over a speech. Um, and the annoying thing about Michael is he really can. Um, and he it's very interesting because my, my, my own dad was, was flew with Bomber Command in the, in, in the Second World War and his, my uncle Lawrence was shot down and killed. And my dad started to talk about uh, it about six weeks before he died, when he was 84, and and it was it was so strange that it had been around us all this time the war you know we'd, we'd kind of grown up with it and and then he, but he kind of he'd not always you know he'd been a big God forgive me dad for saying this but he'd been a big drinker and and, and he was quite a fiery man and um, and he he clearly had also had been carrying something but it took him a long time to be able to say it and 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 this is the thing with with Bernie and I think Michael's performance is so extraordinary because as you say. He doesn't. He doesn't need a big long speech, and he doesn't need to be, you know, kind of expositional all the time. He just. He gives you that look, and you just know, oh man, you're carrying such a lot of baggage somewhere. Yeah, and, and Ollie, I suppose part of that is is down to you in the direction uh, as well. Um, to have two actors of the calibre of Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson playing those two central roles, but particularly how how Michael carries that, you know, so much pain with, without saying a single word, but showing it, it to us. When you're directing somebody like that, what is the job of the director? How, how, how do you handle an actor like that? Uh, as in, and when I say handle, I mean let them be who they are and do what they do. How do you go about that? Well, sometimes it's about staying out of the way. I mean, sometimes it depends on how much of a grasp the actor has. But Michael is such a perfect piece of casting for this as an old soldier himself who's got a persona of much mischief and playfulness, you know, but underneath, you know, like everybody, he's been through a lot of various the ups and downs, the tragedies and the trials and tribulations, they're all in there. Michael knows how to summon them. And um, so he's got this real ease of shifting gear. And um, so often it's literally about, we would rehearse it quite closely. We'd be looking at ways to 
to, um, if you like, cover it sometimes and when it was actually revealed. And, uh, and it, so, for example, he would be, <laughs> his ambition from the beginning was, I want to make him laugh, I want to make him cry, right? <laughs> so very often it would be, here's a film which actually has plenty of both, I think, plenty mm. of opportunities to laugh and the wit of the character uh, shines. And Michael leapt at that and he would embellish it. And, and then when we moved into the more moving things, he he was just almost dying to do it. Yeah, he would literally talk about the scene in the graveyard. Yeah, I, oh, I, I want to do this one. This is one I read this, and when I read this, I thought well, I've got to do that. It was one of the things that made him want to do the film. So he's still got this wonderful ambition for for if you like uh, exploring the range of human emotions. Yeah, and so with him, it, very often it's about getting it as simple and direct. It's not over analyzing it. It's literally getting it as focused as possible within the moment or the scene, and he will just deliver it. It's an astonishing thing, that thing you're talking about, how he can communicate without lines. So much of it is to do with presence, and sometimes the presence is due to inscrutability, where you don't know. As you say, you don't know what's behind those eyes when he's looking out to see, but you sense it's more than just, I'm missing the commemorations. There's something going on there. There's a thorn in that in that sort of psychic soul, which he needs to extract, and you can feel it. And 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 Michael's ability to get to that without it being complex or vague, is is a, a kind of astonishing. Yeah, yeah, and he succeeded certainly in making me both laugh and cry. I have to say, as I watched the film, I mean the the going to the commemorations and dealing with a part of his past is one aspect of the story but another huge aspect of the story it has to be said is quite simply the relationship between Irene and uh, and uh, Bernie the two lead characters as played by Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson that aspect one aspect of the story clearly is what we've been speaking about there with with Ollie uh, Billy that the going to the D-Day commemorations and how he goes about it and deals with certain parts of his past. But another very important aspect of it is the, the love story between Irene and Bernie. I mean, in their twilight years, in this care home together, it's just so beautiful to watch. Just before we talk about Glenda Jackson's performance, which is equally brilliant, that story, that side of the story, how did you go about uh, finding that? Oh, thank well, thanks for saying that, because it's, it's you know, I, I'm... I'm really happy about that. The, the, the fact that a lot of people who've seen the movie um, are kind of really, really connecting with that. And and for me, it was just—I think it's the fact that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as old as the hills myself. So, uh, and and you you are aware as as you get older, becoming more and more sort of invisible. And and yet, my experience of of all the people around me—they they don't feel that way. And and I think that in terms of this this particular story, you know, I'm I'm. It's it's a film, you know, crudely speaking, in some ways about about death, um, and it's it's you know, and it's about the, the the end of times as it was in the war, but also you know the other battle we're all fighting with old age, and which is something that that that, that uh, Bernie is quite explicit about, you know, that there's this there's this other war and there's there's no escape, and I think that. I am quite old-fashioned also in that I think that love is the antithesis of death. I think that, you know, we none of us pass up our time mm. on Earth. And the main reason we wouldn't pass up our time on Earth is because we meet people and, and we love them and we, we fall in love with them. And and so it was so important for me that 
that there had to be this sense of there had to be that that backbone and that spine, which is the thing which ultimately gives them. It's a it's a love story that, in a sense, is unconsummated for seventy years, and then because of their ability to finally talk about this great this great obstacle that this unspoken thing that lies between them, they can then finally have a complete union, and and I and I and I, mm. I find that I, I'm very uh, I'm very I'm not it sounds all things sound pleased with it, but it sits well with me that because it it, it fits my kind of worldview. Yeah, and but I'm sitting here looking at a, at, a, at one of the publicity photographs in front of me of Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson sitting on a park bench. Uh, and the the chemistry between the two of them, Molly, um, she has her their their hands are clasped. One of the hands are clasped. She has her her hand resting on his arm, her head resting in on his shoulder. And the simple ease between the two of them is it's so beautiful to watch in a still picture, but quite definitely in the moving pictures that are that make up the film. You're absolutely right, and that's such a credit to them as people. You know, in terms of. They, they're on their own journey, like Bernie and Rini are, and one of them closer to death than we'd realised. And so it was an incredible sense, and everybody making the film was conscious of it, the kind of commitment to tell this story neither of them needed to do. <laughs> you know, Michael had sort of hung up his boots. Uh, and... Um, and yet they made this incredible contribution. And so there was clearly almost a, a, a want, but, uh, but a deep desire to mm. connect. And it felt like that brought them together in certain ways. They'd known each other, their, their past, they hadn't met, worked together for many years, but they'd been, they'd been husband and wife back then. And there was almost like there was a, a link from then till now. And yeah that had held them together, very different and very similar as characters, both strong working class kids coming through in their different places, Birkenhead and Bermondsey, and they work their way through and they've always remained the same as individuals. And there's something incredibly impressive and moving about it that I think it's one of the things that adds to the potency of the film. The, often the, the baggage that an actor brings to a, fil- a film can be distracting, but here I think it actually plays into it. I think we, we connect to them in a, a kind of psychic way, and uh, which is our luck, our, our great luck as film. Yeah, and I suppose they are two giants of, of British cinema and, and theatre, so it's hardly surprising. The film you were t- speaking about, where they played husband and wife forty-five years ago, the romantic English woman. Let, let, it's hardly surprising then that in the film, when when uh, when he goes missing in 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 France, uh, well, he goes off to France. He doesn't go missing, um, but uh, nobody knows where he is, and the people in the care home are absolutely distraught. So um, it's hardly surprising that uh, Irene needs to be told about this. And I want to listen to a clip which features uh, one of the carers in the home, Adele, played by Danielle Vitalis. She comes in to check on Irene, played by Glenda Jackson, and um, (laughs) they have a conversation, which you will hear now. I bought you something. Ooh. Fish and chips. Oh, Adele. Oh, that's so lovely. Where's Bernie's? Will Martin bring his up later? <laughs> oh, your face, lovely. Your face. I'm pulling your leg. Bernie? Oh, he's gone AWOL. 
Well, everybody knows, but nobody's talking about it because they're afraid it'll finish me off. I haven't said anything about it either because I want to make sure he has enough time to get there. To get where? Where is, where is he? He's in France. Well, what the bloody hell's he doing there? He is attending the D-Day commemorations. But that was full. There was no room on the trip. Ah, but he made his own way. At 90? Mm-hmm. All the way across the channel? Well, he has done it before. Only then, of course, they were shooting at him. I do not believe this. I've been feeling so guilty that, that I didn't check in the morning that... I even bought you a large fish, Rini. That's how bad I was feeling. Oh. So there's Glenda Jackson and Danielle Vitalis in a scene from The Great Escaper and the writer of the film, Billy Ivory, and the director of the film, Ollie Parker, are with me on Arena this evening. She is, Glenda Jackson in that scene is an absolute powerhouse of fun, divilment and deep emotion all in the space of kind of 45 seconds, Ollie. Yeah, it's an astonishing thing to witness and I must admit... I didn't even realize how much she'd done until I sat in the editing room. You know, bit by bit, I could see like a mosaic taking shape. And I, you know, and I knew wonderful moments were, were occurring in front of my eyes and the lens. But then when you see it put together, you realize, if you like, the complete grasp she had of that character. And, and it was her character, you know, uh, it was very interesting. I, we met up with her family on the, the premiere the other night and they were so tickled that she'd uh, employed so many of her own eccentricities uh, mm. in the role and uh, the grumpiness or the kind of chatting to herself or, you know, just the, and the sheer wit, that kind of very, very dry wit that seemed so natural to her. So she could move like, so fluidly between these emotions. And I find she even can do that with her face. You know, the face with this incredible array of lines that could be, a, a, you know, a restriction in some ways, one would think. But actually, she employs them to communicate to us. And they, they, there are moments when the upper lip will tighten, when she's almost warning the care worker to not intrude on her feelings at a certain yeah. point, or whether it relaxes and you get a sense of kind of catharsis and it's it's an, a, a, a miraculous thing to watch the, the command of her feelings and how it sort of resonates through her body is a is a, a wonderful thing to see well listen and um, there's so much more we could talk about i mean there's a whole discussion around ptsd there's also the fact that we get flashbacks to the period it's a wonderful film deeply moving thank you both uh, for speaking with us this evening billy and ollie uh, about the great escaper Pleasure. Thanks so much. And that's uh, Billy Ivory, director, Ollie Parker, sorry, Ollie Parker, director, Billy Ivory, writer there of the film The Greater Scaper. It will be in cinemas from this Friday, October the 6th, and we will be reviewing it on Thursday night's arena. The 72nd Wexford Festival Opera kicks off on Tuesday, October the 24th and it runs through until November the 5th. The programme, as always, will offer a huge variety of performances, recitals, screenings and lectures across those 13 days. As is often the case, Wexford Festival Opera has selected three full works to stage at the National Opera House that are slightly outside the canon of more familiar classics. This year, 2023, the festival's artistic director, Rosetta Kuki, has chosen an intriguing 
intriguing theme, women and war. And she has works which highlight different aspects of the struggles that women face during wartime. Delighted to be joined by Rosetta Cookie Festival Director to take us through what's on offer. It, it is an intriguing um, theme that you've chosen, Rosetta, and it sounds as if it's one that is, is a very recent choice, but I think it's been on your mind for a while. No, it's not a recent choice, Sean. This is in my mind since I was appointed artistic director in 2020. This theme, you are right, is intriguing, but it's also a kind of duty for a woman like me as an artistic director to talk about the reality as well. So what women has to fight every day? It's not only the war um, meant as a a woman with the gun, which is also that one, but it's also the the women that every day fight against injustice, against prejudice, uh, fighting for their rights, the, let's say, the importance to be a woman. Mm. And, and I'm guessing too that, yes, it was chosen a few years back, but with recent events, particularly in Ukraine, uh, of course, is the, is the war, I suppose, that most people will think of in, in current times. When that war started to unfold in front of our eyes and on our television sets, did that make you see even the operas that you had already programmed and chosen, obviously, at this point, did it make you start to look at them and examine them in different ways? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, the most recent uh, war of Ukraine was for me a push, certainly, to put on stage this theme and to see this theme in different perspectives, of course. And so the idea was uh, to, to find the right opera that matches this theme. So luckily, I was lucky, I found three opera that are perfectly matched with this theme, which is Zoraida di Granata by Donizetti, L'Aube Rouge by Camille Erlanger, and La Ciociara by Marco Tutino. These are three women, three mm. very different women in three different times that fight for they're safe, but fight also for their dignity. Let's go into the specifics of, of each of them separately, if we can, Rosetta, because I think it's well worth that. They do give very different pictures of the, the plight of women in wartime. Donizetti, first of all, and obviously a very well-known and much-loved opera composer, but Zoraida de Granata, perhaps not one of his best-known works. Well, uh, it's a point of view. I think that Zoraida is an opera that has... a wonderful moments, especially choral moments, and uh, deciding to do the version of 1822, because there are two versions, decided to do the first one, we unlight even more the beauty of the music and the importance of the protagonist of Zoraida herself. Mm. So I think that it's certainly worth it to be heard, Yes, this opera. And uh, Zoraida, for instance, if we wanted to talk uh, in specific about uh, this woman, is a woman that apparently the story is uh, the usual story. Her father was killed and uh, the killer of her father wants to marry her, but she she loves somebody else. But this is not the point. The point is uh, this woman is a political woman that is able to fight against the war. Not fight in a war, but Mm. fight against the war. How does she do that? 
well, uh, she tried to, first of all, to save her men because uh, he will be sent uh, in the war from, uh, let's say, the killer, which is the king at that point. Mm. So she tried to make him escape when he come back, risking her life. But also during the opera, all the, let's say, the moment that they are all together, she, with her words, with her way of treating the situation, she's able somehow to solve the situation. In fact, believe it or not, this is an opera that has, let's say, an happy ending. Unusual enough Despite enough. Despite the theme, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. And it's it's Claudia Boyle who will be playing the part in, in the production in, in Wexford. But I have a recording uh, of uh, Magella Culla, in fact, singing the part yes. of Zoraida. And this is from Act One. You might explain to us what's going on in this uh, area. I know that there's great sadness involved when I look at the title, Achesata a mio dolore. So there is no, sadness Acce, here. Yes, Accessate il mio dolore. is the second scene of the opera. Uh, the father has been killed. The chorus tried to cheer her up. But she, she says to everybody else, please stop my pain. Because, of course, she's in pain to, to have lost her father. But the aria itself is magnificent. That's the voice of Magella Culla there in a performance of an aria from Zoreda de Granata, one of the operas that will be performed at this year's Wexford Festival Opera. And in fact, it will be Claudia Boyle who will be singing that role in the Wexford production. Rosetta Cookie, artistic director of Wexford Festival Opera, is with me this evening. And I, as I listen to that, and it's classic uh, Donizetti in many ways, but it's true probably of the other operas that you're going to speak about as well, Rosetta. Despite the sadness, yes. despite the awfulness of the theme, uh, Women and War, and the, the great pain that is involved in that theme, the music just soars beautifully above all of that. Absolutely. The music is the fil rouge of the theme, basically. And this is why, for me, even Donizetti, that is a, actually is a, a composer of 200 years ago, is still so modern in a way how to present this story. And uh, the choice of Claudia Boyle was a specific choice because she has uh, that uh, dramaticity in her voice uh, yes. that will be perfect. perfect. For that. Yeah. And, and, perfect. and also, you talk about the beauty there and um, uh, another composer and the second opera, or, or the second of the three operas that we'll speak in detail about, Lo Bruges by Camille Eranger, French composer, not a composer that I'm particularly familiar with, but he was a, a pupil of Delib, which promises some good melodies. Yeah, exactly. He was a pupil of Delib, not only. He won, believe it or not, the Grand Prix of Rome, which was a very important prize at that time for composer. I mean, Berlioz won the same prize. And uh, he wrote, uh, I think, nine operas. But uh, I, I, let's say I met this opera by chance in the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale de Paris, of this opera that has never been done in modern time. Mm. Nevertheless, surprisingly, this is a wonderful music. It's a mix between Massenet and Berg, you know, but in a wonderful way, the orchestration. Uh, 
it's great. Yes. When I played the first time and I, I looked at the orchestral part, I saw this is the perfect piece for Wexford. Without talking about the story, because the story, it's really very theatrical. Um, is a story about uh, that uh, take place between Moscow and Paris. And uh, it's talking about this woman, Olga, which is an heroine, really a heroine, because uh, she's in love with Serge. And Serge is a nihilist. As you, of course, you know that the nihilism was a movement uh, um, of disrupting, uh, the destroying the the, the government, yeah. destroying everything, but also destroying themselves. Basically, Olga, what the Olga does is fighting against to save, let's say, her men yeah. from himself. I want to talk about the third and and final opera in the main part of the programme, if I could, Rosetta, which is one that you're going to direct yourself, that you are directing yourself, which means that it it, it must have particular resonance for you. Uh, Tell me about Marco Tutino and and the work that you are doing that people might be familiar with through another medium. Well, uh, Marco Tutino is a composer that for me, it's really a very interesting composer of this time. Um... I already did actually two opera by him. One was The Servant and the other one was Miseria e Nobiltà, two very different opera. But then when I arrived to this team, I thought about this opera that has been commissioned by San Francisco Opera in 2015, which was La Ciociara. Well, everybody in Italy knows the movie La Ciociara, Mm. which was by Vittorio De Sica, a very important movie director in the 60s, and Sofia Loren, which won the Oscar awards for that movie. La Ciociara comes from a book by Alberto Moravia. It's the story, actually, of two women, and this is the title that San Francisco gave to uh, to this story. Two women, mother and daughter, that are trying to survive the aftermath of the Second World War. It's so close to the, let's say, to the history of of my country, but to the history in general of the Second World War, where I just tell you something. When the Allies arrived, you know, there was a moment of great confusion in Italy, and 60,000 women were raped, Mm. believe it or not. And this is a story as well, that at some point, uh, some soldiers raped those two women. But this is not the the only thing in the story. The story is the journey of a character of these two strong women to go over the Second World War. We have a clip um, from that, uh, a recording from that San Francisco production, um, which was so vital in terms of, I suppose, bringing it back into or, or, or having it shown to us in, in modern times. 2015, I think, was the, the first production. Maybe you could set up this scene for us with uh, Anna Caterina Antonacci as the mother yeah. and Rosetta as her, her, her daughter, Rosetta, played by Lavinia Bini. What's happening in this scene that we're about to hear? Well, this scene is again one of the first scenes of the opera. It's in the shop of Cesiras, and the bomb arrives over them in Rome. Mm. So he put her daughter in a trap, and there is this area where the mother says, don't worry, tomorrow 
we yeah. will leave. And Chisara is, is, as you said, is, is the mother's, the character, the character of the mother's name, performed here by Anna Caterina Antonacci with the daughter Rosetta prepared, performed by Lavinia Bini. A little um, section from La Chochara, one of the three operas at this year's Wexford Festival, Opera Rosetta Kuski, will be pr- directing this particular uh, production for Wexford Festival Opera, and she's with me on the line this evening. Uh, I, we, I was remarking as we as we were listening to that Rosetta that it, it a very recent composition, 2015, but it has a it has a very melodic, almost a, true to the period of the Second World War, that kind of early 20th century, mid 20th century feel of it in terms of the, the style of the music. And this is why I love this opera, because it doesn't want and doesn't pretend to be contemporary, but it feels perfect the time of the Second World War. And there are some melodies that are really beautiful. Marco Tutino will be this year our artist in residence, so it will be here yeah. soon and it will stay with us. And it's brilliant to have the, the, the composer, the living composer there with you. for And indeed, I believe the film itself, the Sophia Loren film, will be shown uh, as well. Is that a good setter up? Does that set you up well for the opera in terms of the action? Are you Would you be more familiar with the action of the opera if you've seen the film? Not only this, uh, I wanted to give the people the possibility to see the movie because my concept in the direction of this opera is that uh, that in the mind of the movie director, just before the first take, every scene passes in his mind and is built in his mind just before the first chuck. Yeah. So uh, the movie will underline how important was this movie for the book to explain and how important will be the opera for the movie. Finally, uh, Rosetta, uh, in keeping with the theme of the festival, your special guest delivering the Tom Walsh lecture this year is the journalist Lara Marlowe and it will be on the theme of women and war. Yes, I'm very, very happy and honoured that Lara will come. We did together at the Trinity College a conference with Lara and Eva Patton uh, about women and war recently on the 19th mm. of September. And uh, she's a really great, tough woman and brave woman. So I want the people to know what what means to go in the front of a war to see directly what's happened. Yeah, I know, and it should be a fascinating lecture and given the theme of the operas in and around it, it will really be a big addition to the festival. Lots more happening at Wexford Festival Opera, but you've really given us a great taste of it this evening. Thanks for being with us, Rosetta. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. That's Rosetta Cookie, Artistic Director of Wexford Festival Opera. The festival runs, as I said, from Tuesday, October the 24th through until Sunday, November the 5th. And you can find full details on wexfordopera.com.
Across the Bitter Sea is a collection of new works in bronze from renowned Irish sculptor John Behan. It was opened on Saturday by the poet John F. Dean and it runs at Kenny's Gallery in Galway through until October the 24th. The exhibition celebrates 50 years of Behan exhibiting at Kenny's and includes some classic pieces in the form of flights of birds and bulls and new versions of John Behan's iconic famine ship. The artist also continues to develop his migrants' work with explorations of Ukraine migrant themes. Delighted to be joined by John Behan from our Galway studios this evening. And by the way, if you'd like to see some of the sculptures that we'll be discussing with John, you can do so on X, what most of us still call Twitter, at RTE Arena. We have put them up there and we'll, uh, you can have a look at them as we're chatting about them here. But uh, as I said, delighted that John joins us from our Galway studios this evening. Across the Bitter Sea is a qu- quite a, a, an evocative title for a, a an exhibition, John. How bitter is this sea? What kind of sea are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a sea that surrounds us um, in, in so many different places, really. Um, the Atlantic with the famine ships and uh, the Black Sea nowadays with uh, all the war that's going on there. And of course, the Mediterranean, in which millions of people are uh, crossing uh, at very frequent uh, intervals and uh, losing their lives, you know. Yeah, and it, it, it really strikes me as you list off those three particular examples, John, it, it, it in some ways signifies something that you've always done in your work. You're talking about the famine there, where you've taken stuff from the past and material from the present and somehow within your sculptures you have managed to have that mix of the past and present. How conscious are you of doing that? Um, I'm fairly conscious of it, all right. I'm always interested in the historical aspect of anything uh, in in the arts, and um, I I like to uh, think that I, I've brought things up to date nowadays, and it it concerns everybody in the world today. We can't get away from it. That's the way I see it. You know, that people have to take responsibility. You know, in the old existential sense of Camus and Sartre and those. You're responsible for yourself and you have to take responsibilities. Mm. And I feel that uh, with the migration theme, which is so huge and so uh, it looks at times impossible to deal with. But we have to try. We have to try to do something for sure. Let's um, look at some of the specific images that we have tweeted, as I say, on at RTE Arena. I'm looking at the moment, John, at Drone Destroyer. And this is a a bronze piece, 26 by 14 by 6 inches. Um, Again, but for the gun in this particular piece of bronze's hands, this could be an image uh, of, of a Greek warrior but for that gun, that mix of past and present seems to be permanently there. Yes, it's uh, it's very evident in a, in a piece like that. You know, the the uh, the, the drone warrior is a he's a symbol of Ukrainian resistance and uh, of the courage and the heroism of of the of the Ukrainian people in this time. And uh, that's what I was trying to get. He is he is a combination of historical. Uh, events and uh, the present day, right up to the minute with technology in terms of arms. To what extent, John, do you think that the fact that the medium here is bronze gives it that ancient quality as well as that contemporary quality? Well, uh, bronze for me, Sean, is the most uh, (coughs) expressive metal that you can possibly come across. It's one of the three noble metals, which are gold, silver and bronze. 
And bronze, you can do anything with. You can colour it. it it's natural. There's copper in it, a, a large quantity of copper, and then tin. And you can put mild acids on it and it'll change colour to greens, to browns, to multicolour. Uh, and if the person doing the patina, as we call it in the trade, mm. uh, has the skills, they can get amazing results. There's no, no metal that's richer, really, you know. I'm wondering, even as you describe the process there, how much of this goes back to your, your, your childhood and your youth watching blacksmiths in and around the places where you grew up? Yes, uh, I did. I used to watch the blacksmiths both in the country where my father came from a county leash and in Dublin. They were all around the place. And then I worked with blacksmiths mm. in the found in the in a place called J.C. McLaughlin's Engineering and um, Art Metalwork. I served my time there seven years. So I got a hugely uh, good education in terms of metal. I, I understood it by the time I was 20. Wow. Much better than going to art college, really. You yeah, know? It's a kind of an apprenticeship in, in some ways. And just one, oh, final, was, yeah. one, one final thing on that drone destroyer image before I, I take a look at another one. Where did you see this image or where did this image come from in terms of its its original state? Well, of I, it came through the media, a photograph in the newspaper. I look at every source I can. I'm not very good at technology, but uh, I do try to keep up with the the whole process of the war and the, the, the horror and all of the, the implications that come from a daily contact with, uh, with, with what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, and um, just to, to look at another of the um, Ukraine images within, uh, within this exhibition as well, talk to me a little bit about Donbass Minor. And again, uh, a, a, almost a futuristic feel to this one, funnily enough, I get. Yeah, uh, well, you see, uh, I, I keep things up to date, you know. The Donbass miners are one of the symbols of resistance in Ukraine. They're extremely important. And I got that uh, image from um, looking up uh, the internet and getting uh, uh, photos of the thing. And yeah. um, I, it's taken from a poem by a female uh, uh, Ukrainian poet. It's about her father. And these are indomitable people, as Yeats used to say about the Irish. They will not give in. It's funny and they symb- symbolise all that's, that's best about the whole uh, Ukrainian resistance. <clears throat> and funny that you should say that the image comes from a, a daughter, given what Rosetta Kuki, the artistic director of Wexford Opera Festival, has just been talking about yes. in terms of women and war. Yeah. It, has yeah. an inter- it has an interesting connection uh, there. But people who are looking at the images on Twitter, at RTE Arena, if you, if you want to do so, you will see behind the Donbass Minor, that statue of the Donbass Minor, you can see a couple of the iterations of um, of a famine ship. Uh, this has this has been an image. I, I think it's safe to say, John, that has haunted is maybe too strong, but certainly has been ever present in your work. I suppose it would be impossible for anybody Irish for the famine not to be ever present in their work in some way. Yeah, well, the whole thing is related. I see to migration. Uh, looking back to the famine as a, as a jumping off point for me as a younger sculptor. And uh, I was always uh, always interested in the famine since I was at school, you know, mm. and got a little taste of it there in the his- history books. Not much, but then I came to Lemo Flaherty, Tom Murphy, and people who really dealt with it in a very serious, artistic, cultural way. And that led me to begin to think, how do I represent the image of the Irish famine? And I thought, look at all the people who had to leave and what happened to them and the horror of what happened to them. And uh, 
that's where that came from, really, you know. And and in terms of, you know, you spoke specifically about uh, the Ukraine images of the images you have in and around the Ukraine war at the moment and how they came from contemporary media. I know there are, obviously, there are paintings and images of famine ships from former times. But at this point, with this particular image, I wonder to what extent are you feeding off previous iterations of the famine ship and your imagination running with it rather than any kind of representation of something you've seen? Yeah, well, I, I don't want to get into a, a re- realism. I want mm. to keep it kind of imaginative and extended uh, extension of the imagination. I don't want to, uh, as I say, realism doesn't represent the famine. It's much bigger than that. And all of this business that's going on now, the, 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 it's symbolic. Uh, the only, it's the only way I can f- mm. deal with it in a symbolic way because uh, realism... Uh, doesn't work for me anyway. You know. There's another image that that uh, we, we've tweeted that I'd like to look at, which is the dog of Bucha um, at RTE Arena, if you want to see that on X. Um, this really reminds me or brings me to, and I know it's because it's an animal and it's a four-legged animal, it makes me think of the bull uh, uh, and, and your use of the image of, of the bull in in previous work, John. Um, yeah. how, how does the dog of Bucha speak to that bull image that you've used previously for you? Well, it's it's the form and it's also the textures and the, the strength uh, the dog of Buka came along, as you know, after a horrific uh, attack, uh, rape, assault, uh, the murder of young men and uh, the destruction of their homes in Buka uh, by the Russian soldiers. And uh, the dog represents the last one left, really, mm. the, dom- the, the, the indomitable dog. Uh, it's meant to be on a Sunday afternoon and there's nobody left in Buka. They're all, all the people are gone. They're either dead yeah. or disappeared, you know. And uh, the subject of migration, I mean, obviously we're watching it, as you, you've mentioned, surf at several places. The borders of the USA are in there, Italy, Greece. Absolutely. And, and yeah. just this weekend, 100,000 people from Nagorno-Karabakh. And these, obviously seeing these images on television and in other places affects you deeply, John. Does it, does it take a, a while for that to seep into the work? Yes, it does. You have to give it time, you know. But uh, I managed to... Uh, go to Greece and go into the camp of Elyon in particular and work there from uh, source material that was real, you know. So mm. I've done that as well, you know. And uh, I agree that uh, migration has been eternal. I mean, people trying to resist uh, migration, it's like, uh, you know, putting your finger in a, a dam and it's collapsing, you know. It's yeah. not going to work. Uh, Fifty years, John, exhibiting in Kenny's. That's a a, a wonderful round figure in many ways. Um, yes, yeah. Very fond memories, or what? Did, are you, are ah, you just yes, looking forward to the next fifty? It's uh, yes, of course. <laughs> but uh, no, I I just I just keep on going every day. Sirson Corda. As Gay Byrne used to say. Well, indeed. <laughs> keep indeed. on trucking. Yeah. Keep keep on trucking. Well, do uh, keep on trucking, John. Great to speak with you this evening. Congratulations on the exhibition. Uh, and I hope that there will be many more in Kenny's in the years to come. That's John Behan speaking to us about his exhibition Across the Bitter Sea, as I said, on at Kenny's Gallery in Galway. And it remains there through until October the 24th. And that is our lot for this Monday evening. Liam Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast 
coordinator John Doyle was in San Galway this evening and here in Dublin, Damien Chanel. Tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGarn. I will be back with you once again tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news.